Hey, GapFest listeners, just a heads up, we're going to be talking about sexual assault in the second segment of the show today, and some of the details may be upsetting. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest. Thursday, May 4th, the Why Didn't You Scream edition. I'm Emily Bazelon from the New York Times Magazine and Yale Law School. David Plotz is away this week, and so I am delighted to be joined by Jamel Bowie, who is a columnist for the New York Times. Hey, Jamel. Hello. And also with us, of course, is John Dickerson of CBS News Primetime. Hi, John. Hello, Emily. Hello, Jamel. On the show today, we'll talk about the fight over the debt ceiling. Is there a way out of what looks like a huge impasse that could lead to a default on the national debt? Our second topic is a trial about the allegations that the writer E. Jean Carroll has made of rape and defamation against former President Donald Trump. And third, we'll talk about how Republicans are using their supermajorities in state legislatures in some ways to defy the will of the voters. And finally, we'll have cocktail chatter. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't outtrain her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Oh, man, the debt ceiling. All right. So here's where we are, I believe. The Republicans in the House are insisting they won't lift the debt ceiling without big spending cuts. And they passed a bill that had a package of those. President Biden is saying that he is not going to agree to those spending cuts because that would amount to holding the American economy hostage. These are not budget negotiations. He's saying this is just about paying off the nation's debts. For over 200 years... America has never, ever, ever failed to pay its debt. To put in the capital and colloquial terms, America is not a deadbeat nation. We have never, ever failed to meet the debt. Now, as a result, one of the most respected nations of the world, we pay our bills, and we should do so without reckless hostage taking from some of the mega Republicans in Congress. Janet Yellen, our Treasury Secretary, is saying that the country could run out of money to pay its bills on June 1st, which is now being called the X date. And so as all this drama swirls, Biden has invited Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the other top three congressional leaders for a sit down discussion next week. John, let's start with you. What are they going to talk about and what is the most likely way out of this impasse? Part of being able to describe what they're going to talk about is a part of the answer to your second question, which is that there are two routes, I think, that are the most reasonable. One is that essentially both sides agree to kind of gaslight everybody. Biden is saying these talks are about 
um, spending in the normal budget process. They have nothing to do with the debt limit. And if McCarthy allows him that fiction, this is one route. I don't. I'm not saying it's a possible route, but it's one of the po- it's one of the possible routes. McCarthy allows Biden to say we didn't lift the debt ceiling because we were extorted, but then agrees to a bunch of spending reductions as a part of the normal budget process. The government runs out of money and would need a continuing resolution to fund the government in September. So these two things are sort of happening at the same time. So an ultimate agreement would require some sort of everybody agreeing to a public fiction. Now, that's really complicated because the actual spending reductions, they're huge. There's a huge gap between the House position and the White House position, but that's one way this could get resolved. The other way it gets resolved is there's a discharge petition that the Democrats have put forward. All you need is 218 votes in the House um, to pass a discharge petition for a clean debt ceiling increase. That would require needing five Republicans for the Democrats. And the idea might be that the White House would agree to some cuts that Republicans have um, offered, say, clawing back some of the money that was um, sent out to the states for COVID-19 relief that wasn't spent, something that would that would appease some small number of Republicans um, and have them say, you know, we don't want to crash the economy. The White House has agreed to these things. We will lift the debt ceiling and vote with this discharge petition, uh, and then we'll work out all our spending fights in the normal spending budget process. They would get absolute white-hot power of the sun rage from the Republican base, but you might be able to find five Republicans who who could um, go that route. Jamel, do you hate the debt ceiling as much as I do? And what do you think is going to happen? I do hate the debt ceiling a lot. Uh, I think it is a very silly thing for a modern country and a modern economy to have. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I do think it's interesting that people are talking seriously about the idea that the debt ceiling itself just might be unconstitutional, which is a view that I have. Typically, when people talk about this, they talk about it in terms of the 14th Amendment and Section 4 of the 14th Amendment. The a qu- very, very quick history of, the, of this section, it's basically a response to political fears after the Civil War that if former Confederates got back into Congress, what they would do is they would repudiate union debt, meaning union debtors couldn't get their money back because the union had done that for Confederate debt. They basically said Confederate debt is invalid, doesn't count anymore. Uh, and so to prevent that from happening, this is inserted into the 14th Amendment during the drafting process. And so a lot of the argument is like, well, this is a very clear um, instruction that like you, you, you simply cannot call the public debt into question. There are legal scholars who have argued, uh, drawing on opinions later from the Supreme Court, that the public debt, that, cl- that clause should be considered in very expansive terms that the validity of the debt of the United States is then brought into question whenever the government takes an action that might suggest that it won't honor all of its obligations. And I think that's all right. But I also think it's worth saying that there is another way to approach the constitutional question, which is that the debt ceiling essentially gives the president two contradictory instructions. So Congress passes a budget. It's signed. That budget is law. The president has to fulfill the terms of that budget. The president can't decide that he's not going to spend money on one thing. He's going to raise taxes for something else. The budget, clear instructions the president has to follow. And any discretion is discretion that Congress has to give to the executive branch in one way or another. The debt limit says you cannot issue additional debt past this point to cover obligations already incurred. And so if 
To fulfill the law as written by Congress, the president has to issue debt, but can't because of the debt limit. This essentially forces the president to do one of two unconstitutional actions, unilaterally cut spending or unilaterally raise taxes. And I don't think that Congress can issue that kind of instruction. Congress cannot issue an instruction to the executive branch, essentially saying, you have to violate the Constitution to fulfill obligations that we have placed on you. The question, the the gamble, I think, for the White House would be, this would be a single act by the president's side. So it would be all on the president's shoulders. And while this is being worked out in in the courts, where even if the arguments are strong, he could still lose, just because who knows who the court is and all of that. And then all of the economic calamity that takes place, if it does take place, because the markets are going to have a say here about whether they agree with this interpretation of the Constitution, it all falls on the president's shoulders. And all the arguments will be lost because, you know, the attention economy will kick in and everybody will just be calamitous. I think there's also a possible second downside, which is what happens to the debt that's that's issued in this period between the White House when the White House is litigating this through the courts? Does it get downgraded because ultimately, if the courts decide that this debt that was issued post debt ceiling was not valid, then the value of that debt, which creates just lots of noise in the markets. And we've seen that the markets, although oddly, with respect to the debt ceiling, the markets have been pretty like chill. But when the markets decide not to be chill, everybody goes nuts. You know, we saw that with with the banking. We've had the you know collapse, massive collapse of banks um, as a result of everybody not being chill. That's not the only reason, obviously. I mean, I think it's short term pain and then possible long term benefit. I just also, you know, there are certainly. There's law on your side, Jamel, and then there are also constitutional scholars who are really skeptical, partly just because this has never happened before, partly because it's Congress that has the power in the Constitution to tax and spend. And this is arguably the president stepping in and taking it away from them, just noting that devil's advocate position. Right. No, I, I think that practically this is this is not going to happen. But I do think it's worth sort of just like asking the question. I'm glad people are beginning to ask the question seriously. Like, can Congress even do this? Like, is does this constitute like a power Congress even has? Because it is it's like it's weird, right? Like you pass a budget and sort of implicit in that is, well, you'll just have to spend whatever you need to spend to fulfill the terms of it. And so it's like it's strange to then, to then say, oh, well, we're we're, <laughs> we're going to make you do this, but then also you're limited in whether you can do it a particular way. And the reason why this hasn't come up is in part because like for most of the history of the debt ceiling, it has not been used as this negotiating tool. Um, it's just been sort of like a, you know, a thing that you do. I feel the same way about the gazillion dollar coin, like minting the crazy coin. And I, part of me wonders that if, Biden just went ahead and did this if there'd be a huge, you know, flurry of like, oh, my God. And then it would just everyone would settle down and we would have a new norm. And, you know, in uh, I think in a lot of ways, it would be like a big sigh of relief. So the the, co- the trillion dollar coin, which so in, in theory can just be a small coin. I think if you do that, you have to actually make a, a comically large coin. It has to be like a, a publisher's <laughs> clearinghouse size coin. And <laughs> I think in a funny way, I don't. I, I think politically, by maybe not cannot really take that option because it's sort of like it fits in with stereotypes about democratic governance. I actually think in a funny way, the only president who could have done that and gotten away with it is Trump. 
Like, it feels like a very Trump thing, right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, we'll just resolve this by making a big coin. Anyone want to take a bet on how this ends? I do like the gamble. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the constitutional gamble? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like an escape hatch, right, Javel? Yeah, no, I, I, I kind of think, I think John's first, th- they're going to play a bit of uh, uh, what, K-Fabian, is that how you say it? Um, and uh, everyone's going to like pretend to get what they wanted out of this is probably the most likely thing. It allows everyone to save face, but I don't know. But then they have to agree on something, don't they? They have to agree on something. And then probably the chaos entrepreneurs in the House Republican conference will increase their standing in the world and their ability to fundraise by saying, this is all, they're trying to gaslight us. This is, you know, this is not what we wanted. This is the same kind of fakery that we, you know, have always stood against. So if that happens, then McCarthy has to go, okay, what we're going to pass is going to pass with Republican and Democratic votes, which then makes his, you know, his job, if you want to be histrionic about it, is on the line here because, you know, any one of these um, members could challenge his speakership. Now, you'd have to have somebody replace him, et cetera. But I mean, it gets pretty ugly going down that road, even if Biden and McCarthy could agree to something. One of the amusing side dramas is that Mitch McConnell, who McCarthy, who who Biden really would prefer to negotiate with, because McConnell and and Biden have done this before in 2011. Biden McConnell negotiated to get to the end of that debt ceiling crisis. It pissed off Harry Reid so much so that he forced Obama to not let Biden negotiate anymore with McConnell on these things. That uh, you know Biden would like to bring McConnell in, but McConnell doesn't want to be brought in because McConnell has no ability to tell Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, what to do. So. Getting involved will only be a huge headache for him, even though his sympathies probably lie with Biden in terms of not crashing the economy. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments every week. You also get extra benefits, like you won't have to hit the paywall on the Slate site, and you'll get bonus segments on other Slate podcasts. Today, John and Jamel are going to share with us their latest cooking wisdom it's going to be excellent. I am going to learn a lot. So please go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. 
I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's move on to our second topic. In the midst of the Me Too movement, the writer E. Jean Carroll came forward with a really disturbing story about running into Donald Trump one night in the mid-1990s as he was coming in to Bergdorf Goodman, the department store. Let's listen to a clip of Carroll telling the story to Anderson Cooper in 2019. I was coming out. And he was coming in, he was standing out, and he put his hand like this. So I did not go through the revolving door. He came in, he said, hey, you're that advice lady. And I said, hey, you're that real estate tycoon. He said, come advise me, I want to buy a present. I said, oh, for who? He said, for a girl. He was going to get some lingerie. And I am just like, oh, I can dine out forever on this story. We're going to go get lingerie. You you say you go up to the, the, the lingerie department and no one is around. And there are... Two or three boxes on the counter, the fancy, remember the old-fashioned lingerie boxes, and a filmy see-through bodysuit. I used to be a writer at Saturday Night Live. I see an entire sketch of making Donald Trump put this filmy thing over his pants. That is what I'm thinking. So for you, this was kind of a, a New York moment. Oh, the best New York. Just like the best New York. Donald Trump is going to put on a filmy bodysuit. It's like, oh, I couldn't. So he, let's go in the dressing room. I thought, yeah, I'm going to make him put pants on. Walked in. And the minute I was in there, he shut the door and pushed me up against the wall and bang, bang my head on the wall and kissed me. I just, it was so shocking. So he pushed me, you know, he pushed me, held me with his shoulder, and I was wearing a, a coat dress and tights, and he pulled down the tights. And so um, that's he pulled what, it with, with He pulled it in, uh, with both hands, with one hand? One. And um, that was when it turned serious. I realized that this was, this was, this was a fight. So usually allegations like these that are made many years um, later would not get a hearing in court. But last May, New York passed a law that gives adult victims of sexual assault a one-time opportunity to file a civil case, even if the statute of limitations has long ago expired. After that, Carol filed a lawsuit, and she accused Trump of rape, and she's seeking damages for that. She's also suing for defamation because Trump has denied her charges and also called her a liar. So what's happening right now in New York is this amazing event of a jury of six men and three women hearing Carol's suit. Um, she is now 79. She testified. She endured some... Um, pretty intense cross-examination. She's been very matter-of-fact on the stand. Um, At one point, she started crying briefly when she was just talking about being moved at finally getting her day in court. And then she, you know, got herself together and she said, I don't want to sit here and cry and waste everybody's time. Jamel, what, what do you make of this trial? What are you paying attention to in it? I mean, obviously, Trump is not going to show up. He's not going to testify. There's not going to be any of that. I'm just sort of curious to see 
how the Trump camp does ultimately respond if Carol ends up winning her lawsuit. Like, I, I, it's, it's sort of, it really is um, new territory to have a president, a former president, and, you know, at this point, presidential candidate be on the hook for be legally liable in this way uh and then and then have essentially a jury agree that yeah he probably sexually assaulted this woman and and owes her for it i mean i don't think it's going to necessarily harm his political chance or harm his chances within the republican party or anything but i do think it it is like truly unknown territory for american politics for a president to have this a former president to have this um, kind of strike against them. So I'm I, for me, it's like I have no predictions. I have no sort of like grand theory. I'm just like genuinely interested to see how this all plays out because it's very, it's very unusual. What I thought was striking about this case is not just E. Jean Carroll's um, claims, but the two other women who were brought to testify. And can they do that in a, because it's a civil case? Emily, I always thought that in cases, and maybe this is only in criminal cases, or but that other behavior kind of always gets knocked out of the box. It's not just a civil case what's happening here. It's the idea that evidence that shows a particular pattern of wrong behavior that is directly relevant to the charges at issue, whether they're civil or criminal, that's an exception. You're totally right, John, that like when someone's on the stand for murder, you usually can't bring in their string of robberies that are from another time or date unless they're on the stand and it comes up, they bring it up, and then you're allowed to bring it in to impeach them as a witness. Pattern evidence is different, though. And and as you were saying, like these two other women, as well as the jury heard the Access Hollywood tape. All of this is about, well, does Donald Trump have a history of this kind of conduct? It's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a civil judgment. You don't have the same kind of really high standard um, for finding guilt. I mean, you even don't necessarily think of it as guilt because you're not talking about criminal guilt. And do you think the defamation piece of it's harder to prove, separatable, or if if the jury decides that this took place, then wouldn't that make defamation, the defamation would have had to take place because Trump said something that he would know to be not true if the jury's decided that the thing is true? Yeah, I mean, the standard for defamation is usually really high. You have to have reckless disregard for the truth or absolute malice. But if you if the jury thinks Trump did this, then it's hard to see how they wouldn't think that Trump calling her a liar was something that he knew he was lying about, which is a more complicated way of restating what you just said. And yet his numbers would go up. Well, I think part of the reason for that is this conduct being priced in, right? I mean, as much of a bombshell as Jamel's right, this kind of is and should be, it also has this unsurprising element to it, right? I mean, there were many women who came forward before Donald Trump was elected who accused him of some kind of conduct that's related to this. I mean, this is a really stark rape accusation, and not all of the charges went that far. But it's not like this is some, we can't imagine this about Donald Trump. And so I think that's why you're both imagining that the political consequences would be minimal or else even helpful to him in the Republican primary because it just adds to his witch hunt claims, right? I mean, that's what he's calling this. That's always what he says. The other thing I'd add just about how this might work out in the Republican primary, it's just that it hurting him would depend on other Republican candidates 
using it to go after him. And there's thus far like no indication that other Republican presidential hopefuls have any appetite for doing that. In a funny way, this is like kind of the exact coordination problem that uh, helped Trump win in 2016, that as long as everyone else is going to keep their distance on this sort of thing, that itself neutralizes it. Because voters, like people, I think quite reasonably take the position that, well, if no one's making a big deal about this, it must not be a big deal. And uh, just an adjacent point to Jamal's, I was struck by the CBS poll this week that asked likely Republican primary voters whether they thought Joe Biden had won enough legal votes in the right place to be the legitimate president. So this is the the specific was the election stolen question. 69% of Republican primary voters believe that. And 61% of them would like the nominee, whoever it is, to hold the position that Donald Trump was the rightfully elected president in 2020. So if that is the brain space of the primary voters, they should be able to process this pretty easily without um, also, and it goes back to Jamel's point, it's why no Republican candidates are raising even Mike Pence, <laughs> the issue that Donald Trump um, broke with his office in several several critical way, ways in the months-long effort to overthrow the election. They won't even bring that up. I just want to talk for a second about Eugene Carroll and what she is doing here. I mean, Joe Tacopino, who's Trump's lawyer, has gone after her pretty hard. And I mean, in a lot of ways, that's his job, right? But um, she is enduring what sexual assault victims often have to endure when they come forward. He asked her, why didn't she scream? Um, I think lots of women who've been victims of sexual assault understand why she didn't scream. There are lots of reactions that people have in the middle of a traumatic experience that are not sort of what everyone expects you to do. You can be kind of paralyzed. You can freeze in the moment. You can try to deny to yourself what's even happening. Um, He pointed out that when she said she called a friend of hers after this happened that she could have called 911. Um, you know, why didn't you call the police? There were other people in Bergdorf Goodman. Why didn't you say anything to any of them? They're just all these like, it's victim blaming. It's also just sort of questioning your credibility based on the steps you took in the immediate aftermath. And I don't think there'll be any repercussions for Takapina or certainly for Donald Trump, but it is like a very classic um, unfolding here of what's happening. And and Carol's really put herself on the line. I mean, she's enduring all kinds of, you know, abuse and hateful reactions. Emily, what's your sense of the time? Because those accusations are taking place in the present, but they are about a set of behaviors in the 1990s, where, at, where for women, um, and there was this part of testimony where Eugene Carroll calls her friend to report this, and the friend testified about this, that the friend said to her, essentially, he raped you. That I wonder how you think those conversations would have been different and Carroll's ability to react if this happened a year ago. It's not a question about her behavior, but it's a question about the culture around it and how it's changed and whether you think that would have um, had events play out differently. Yeah, I mean, I think for some people, there's this greater awareness that like, this is terribly wrong, and that you should speak out and condemn in the moment, Um, not to say that you would necessarily scream when you wouldn't have before, but that you might have felt more comfortable coming forward. But I think for a lot of people, that's still not true. 
And sexual assault is remains terribly shaming in a lot of situations. And there are all kinds of reasons why people want to deny that traumatic experiences happen to them, because then you have to really grapple with it. And I think there's like a very human self-protective instinct where you sort of hope, well, maybe that's not really what happened, because then I have to don't have to go down to this very dark place. I guess what I was stumbling after is to the extent anybody might believe that the Me Too movement created the conditions to make it easier to come forward. If you believe that, then in a jury, you might think, well, it's more, you know, she should have come forward if that's. But in the 1990s, it was even harder to come forward, I guess, is what I'm saying, is that there was no Me Too movement. There was a much bigger barrier. This was and and in fact, Trump has kind of proved it um, in the sense that he hasn't been penalized for the Access Hollywood tape, which didn't just exist by itself. It affirmed the claims of many women who had previously come forward and it didn't penalize him. So. That was imagine that as being the culture in which you're operating in the 1990s. That it's a more the culture was even more closed than it is today. I guess is what I was trying to figure out. Yeah, that's totally fair. I mean, I think that to come forward and accuse Donald Trump with all of the you know rage machine he has behind him is a formidable task to undertake, and Carol has a lot of fortitude to try to pull that off. Hey, listeners, we have a new episode of GabFest Reads that's dropping on Saturday. It's actually an interview I did with the novelist Curtis Sittenfeld, and it's about her new book, Romantic Comedy, which is about a romance at a comedy show which is basically Saturday Night Live. It's a delightful book. I had a great time talking to Curtis. I hope you have time to listen. Let's turn to topic three. So, Jamel, you have been writing a lot about how Republicans are using legislative majorities in various states to change the rules effectively so they can more easily remain in the majority or win other kinds of battles. And when I was reading one of your columns, I thought, okay, well, here are examples of a kind of familiar version of this kind of, you know, rule tweaking. And then there's some newer stabs they're taking. So the familiar version is um, Cleta Mitchell, who's a top Republican lawyer. She's one of the people who was involved in challenging the November 2020 election results. She's telling donors to the Republican National Committee that oh, let's limit voting on college campuses and tighten the rules for voter registration and mail-in ballots. So, like, this is the kind of familiar play. But then there's this other thing happening, which is about changing the rules for ballot initiatives, right? Where you have Republicans in various states like Ohio and Missouri and Florida raising the threshold for what it takes to pass a ballot initiative. So you need a supermajority of voters. This is kind of new, I think, and I'm interested in it because historically ballot initiatives have been neither consistent friends to Democrats or Republicans, right? Like they get used in all kinds of ways. So I wonder, you know, why you think this is the moment to mess around with the ballot initiative passage threshold. I mean, I think the the reason is is pretty straightforward the ballot initiative has been one of the means through which voters who support abortion rights and, and Democrats um, generally have been trying to either enshrine abortion rights into state constitutions or stop uh, initiatives that would revoke abortion rights, which is the situation in Kansas. But it, it's a tool to get these rights in the constitutions to, you know, Missouri, it was used to pass the Medicaid expansion over the objection over the, over the legislature. Um, so in, in recent years, the ballot initiative, the referendum 
has really been a way for voters in states on particular issues to circumvent circumvent legislatures that are um, kind of unresponsive to those issues, which is sort of an interesting thing to think about, right? Like, even if um, let's take let's take Kansas and abortion, even if most Kansas voters are conservative across the board. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are buy into the full package of beliefs that comes with being a Republican lawmaker, right? Because that package of beliefs is a result of like interest group pressure. It's a result of the particular factions and interests and whatever that that form the Republican Party. And they're not necessarily all coherent together. And so you might, as a voter, be like, yeah, I, I want the government not to spend very much money, but like I think it's ridiculous to ban abortion, right? That's a totally coherent set of views to have that may not be represented in a legislature where the members are pressured by anti-abortion activist groups who have made the Republican Party like the main vehicle for their goals. And so even, even when there actually isn't that much ideological distance between the legislature and the voters, there's no guarantee that things the voters want it's, are going to be represented in the legislature. And there's actually a decent likelihood that the legislature will pursue things that really run counter to what voters want, which is sort of like a basic, kind of like the basic issue with representation as a concept, um, which isn't a big deal if it's possible to replace those lawmakers on a regular basis. But then this gets to the other thing, right, that in, in some of these Republican-controlled states, there's been this effort to essentially gerrymander permanent legislative majorities or something like it, or if not permanent legislative majorities, to at least freeze in time as much as possible the particular configuration of the legislature at the moment of the gerrymander. The majority of people might say, well, this legislature isn't representing our views like in either way, in any way, and we're going to vote, uh, a majority of us are going to vote for the other party that will. There's no, <laughs> no real correspondence between your vote and the actual distribution of seats in the legislature. And in the absence of something to kind of like break that, the referendum and the initiative is like the only option you really have. And so from my perspective, what's happening is those legislatures see that very clearly and are saying, well, we got to we gotta like nix that option. We have to like make sure that that can't happen either, which calls into question, right? Like whether you can even, like if you have a state where, Voters can't actually replace the legislature, even if a majority of them want to and vote that way, where they have no avenue um, to uh, uh, make the laws they want to make because the initiative process has either been severely restricted or the barriers to even passing something have been raised so high as to make it practically impossible. That's not a democracy anymore. Right. It's, it's not. I mean, this really struck me because it's such a good example, Jamel, of exactly what you're talking about. And it just seems um, so blatant. So Arkansas voters rejected a ballot measure that was going to put new restrictions on future ballot measures. And then the governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, just passed the changes into law. So essentially, you're just like contradicting the will of the voters because you can. And obviously, the only way that uh, practice like that ends is if there is an electoral penalty for it, if the voters throw you out the next time. But I think these kinds of, you know, structural, procedural moves, however bad they are, it's rare to be directly punished for them because they always seem kind of wonky. Jamel, do you see any political consequences for Republicans for doing this? I don't necessarily 
see any political consequences because you have to, this is a thing, like if you want to punish a legislature for just like ignoring the voters outright, you have to like make that salient. And it's sort of like a hard thing to make salient precisely because you're asking voters to sort of like rethink their political identity a bit. And that's that's like just a tough nut to crack. So in Arkansas, like I don't, I don't imagine that Republicans will suffer any real political consequence for doing this unless Democrats there can somehow convince voters that like this is kind of the axis around which you want to think about your political commitments. I will say, you know, it's interesting to me to think about all of this in the context of Moore v. Harper, the case that's still up in front of the Supreme Court about the role of state legislatures in federal elections and how much autonomy and uh, authority they have, whether they are subject to state constitutions and whether state courts can um, uh, govern their behavior when it comes to federal elections. There, there is this sort of a like question being raised about like what exactly is the nature of a state legislature? Like, is a state legislature a straightforward representative institution that should try as much as possible to represent the people who elect them and correspond as much as possible to their views? Or is a state legislature some sort of like autonomous thing in and of itself that has no obligation to do any of that. Like the, the the view, the independent state legislature view would suggest the latter, that like somehow the state legislature is not just not subject to regulation by state courts on these election issues, but like itself almost like prior to the to the formation of the polity itself under the state constitution. Like it's a really weird ontological claim about what a state legislature is. I think all of these things are are getting to that. Like, what obligation do the state legislature actually have to the people uh, it's supposed to represent? We're kind of recapitulating a bit some of the exact things that ultimately led to the creation of a powerful Congress. That, like, one of the the, the uh, you know before the seventeen seven convention, Madison writes this sort of basically long list of grievances he has with state legislatures. And the, the essence of those grievances are like, listen, these things aren't actually that democratic. And Federalist 10 kind of gets into his argument there that like, you know, by virtue of the small sphere representation in these states, there's no real guarantee that you're getting in the legislature a genuinely representative group of people, and you may just be getting a couple narrow factions who are doing as they please. I think it's interesting to like look at all of this in that context of sort of like state legislatures, some of them at least, like really radically removing themselves from the people they're supposed to represent, which like runs counter to I think a lot of the civic mythology we're told about state legislatures, which they are the closest to the people, that they're the most representative, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what we're seeing is that because States themselves, I mean, there's, this is a whole other, states themselves have this sort of ambiguous, uh, have this ambiguous status with regards to their sovereignty in the American system. Like, how sovereign are they exactly? Uh, because of that, and because we do give quite a bit of power to states, even in the current, you know, configuration of the American government, where the national government is quite strong. There is all this leeway for states to kind of just move, again, radically away from the public they represent. And I, I don't think that in terms of like partisan politics, I don't think there's a, that anyone's like really prepared to think about what that means in terms of people's actual ability to be represented um, and to have their views count and to have, to have their votes count, frankly, just like for, for their votes to actually matter. Yeah, the idea of states being the 
laboratories of democracy, but sometimes they can be Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory of democracy. I mean, also, I just I love that point about Madison, because you think of the convention in 1787 being about worrying about, you know, having a king. But as I read it, Madison was it was the, the legislature in Virginia that was was animating him and the craziness of of mob rule that had worked its way through that process. This has been a problem since this whole experiment started. Our excellent researcher, Julie Hugan, looked up rating of democracy by state. It's from the Movement Advancement Project. So we'll put that link into the show notes. Before we close out this topic, I just wanted to pick up another thread you mentioned, Jamel, which is about abortion in particular. I mean, it's a good example, I think, right now in Republican-controlled states of this gap between your representative, your political identity, the reasons you would vote for a Republican, and then your views on abortion, right? Because I think one thing we're seeing is that when abortion is directly on the ballot, even in red states, it's um, not proving popular with voters, um, at least in, you know, Kansas, Michigan is a purple state, Kentucky, to take away abortion rights, which is, as you said, why ballot initiatives are important right now. We haven't necessarily seen support for abortion rights translate into rejecting Republican candidates across the board. Um, And so it's getting it directly in front of the voters, it seems important. And one thing that we're going to watch, I think, is a kind of race in some of these states between trying to raise the threshold for passing a ballot initiative and getting an abortion ballot initiative onto the ballot. So like in Ohio, they're going to have a special election in August to try to raise the threshold to 60 percent. And that's going to if it passes in a special election where not that many people will vote, presumably, um, then that's going to happen in advance of the ballot initiative that they're collecting signatures for, which would be in November. Um, so, you know, that's a real another way in which abortion rights may end up being restricted, kind of contrary to the direct popular will of the voters. All right, let us move on to cocktail chatter. Jamel, I don't know when you're going to have the time to be drinking this weekend, but surely there'll be some moment of leisure where you're being completist about some movie director um, or doing some other excellent cultural activity in which you will want a drink in your hand. And what will you be chattering about as the movie loads? You're right to uh, note that I'm going to be being completist about some director. I've recently been into the films of uh, Seijun Suzuki, a Japanese director uh, who whose work mostly in the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And, you know, this is, I feel like as I say this, like, oh, this could be some highbrow thing. But uh, Suzuki is the opposite of highbrow. He is almost like the lowest possible brow uh, you could have. And he he what he, he worked for one of these B movie studios in Japan. They kind of just like cranked out stuff, you know, like you know, generic scripts, cranking things out. And he got bored doing this. Bored doing this. So beginning really in the in the early sixties, he takes this approach where he's like, well, what if I take one of these scripts and take out everything that's boring, everything that isn't directly related to action or mayhem or chaos, and then I shoot that. And the result are these movies that are genuinely unhinged and are super dynamic and incredibly fun, um, but like kind of incoherent because they have no real narrative through line. It really is just sort of like a like a set pieces and images pulled together by action. And he's usually described as sort of like 
jazzy. It's very sort of like imp- imp- improvisational. And so I, 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 a while ago, had bought a restoration of one of his most famous films, Tokyo Drifter, which is like this 67-minute film, maybe 75 minutes, like very short. It's bright. It's colorful. It's like neon. And it really is just sort of like pure chaos. Um, and it's so much fun to watch. And Criterion has a bunch of his films on streaming now. They just released a big restoration of his most famous film, uh, which is called, and these all have great names, called Branded to Kill, um, uh, starring um, uh, Joe Shishido, who is like a very recognizable Japanese star of the 60s. And I'm looking forward to to watching that. But uh, th- that's what I'm kind of like into right now. Just these very uh, absurdist almost like action thrillers from the sixties that like were made specifically with the intention of like, can I get a generic script and just make it uh, absolutely flabbergasting uh, to audiences? And it's like exactly in my wheelhouse. All right. I love that. Um, John, how about you drink in hand? What are you going to be chattering about this weekend? You know, sometimes when you're reading either um, old broadsheets or the language of some of the, um, framers in their letters, the, the, the 97 word sentences that backwards running to the beginning go can get a little tiresome late at night when you have it. So I have found that chat GPT, um, has been a possibly useful tool in this regard. And I haven't really tried it out too much with, um, with, with writing from the past, but I definitely have used it to, um, decode what the federal reserve says. And so yesterday the federal reserve wrote, In determining the extent to which additional policy firming may be appropriate to return inflation to 2% over time, the committee will take into account the cumulative tightening of monetary policy, the lags with which monetary policy affects economic activity, and inflation and economic and financial developments. So I said to ChatGPT, can you rephrase this just in regular English? And it said, the Federal Reserve is trying to figure out if they need to take more action to bring the cost of things back to normal. They will think about how much they have already tried to make prices go down, how long it takes for their actions to work, and what is happening in the economy and financial world. So anyway, what I like about this is it makes my life easier. But it also, I guess because I'm thinking about the Fed, because their role is not just to mess with interest rates, but it's also to send signals to the economy. And in that regard, clarity matters. Of course, and sometimes opacity is helpful, too, because you want both sides to think of what you're saying is what they want to hear. Um, anyway, but um, if you are if you find yourself with a particularly tricky passage in front of you, take it over to ChatGPT and just ask it to explain it, and it will um, at least help you get somewhere further down the road. Yeah, I mean, I think it's what ChatGPT so far is best at. It's like summarizing or... I mean, this is, I guess, more than summarizing. It's actually like offering an analytical um, or just sort of a simplifying version. But I think this like, the, I mean, it's like you can take all this copious material and get it to like summarize it for you or tell you the best quotes or whatever. And when it summarizes it incorrectly, that's super useful, too, because you're like, oh, it's missed this nuance. And it turns out that nuance is either important or, you know, that nuance was just a huge hurdle to the pure meaning of what they were trying to make. 
My chatter this week is about a case in Texas I've been following. It's a lawsuit brought by um, an ex-husband named Marcus Silva against friends of his wife who he says helped her get pills for an abortion. The lawsuit was filed in March. It's brought by Jonathan Mitchell, who is a former solicitor general in Texas, and he was the architect of SB8, which was that kind of like private bounty hunting law that effectively shut down a lot of Texas abortion clinics before Roe was overturned. This week, the friends of uh, Silva's ex-wife filed their answer to his to this lawsuit, and they also countersued for invasion of privacy. And what interests me here is the kind of pitting of two sets of legal values against each other. So Marcus Silva is suing for wrongful death. He's saying that his fetus, it counts as a person who was murdered. And so he has this claim for damages. He's suing each of the women for a million dollars. And the women are saying, wait a second, your whole case is based on private text messages that you accessed without your ex-wife's consent and without our consent. And interestingly, Silva actually filed a police report um, last July before the abortion took place in which he told the cops that he had gone through his wife's purse and searched her phone. He also told them that he had found an abortion pill, which it seems he then put back into her purse. Um, So he, in fact, seems to have known about the abortion before it took place since he found that pill, um, which is at odds with the way the lawsuit is framed. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. There's supposed to be a hearing in June. And the reason I care about this case is, you know, it's a kind a bellwether for both sides, right? I mean, it's abortion opponents see it as a way of trying to deter people from helping other people get abortions. And then people who support abortion rights are concerned about this kind of liability going forward, um, especially because abortion pills and people helping each other get them and learn how to take them is such an important form of access going forward. And we have some great listener chatter today from Ted Hogeman. Let's listen. Hi, this is Ted Hogeman in Washington, D.C. Last weekend, my wife and I traveled down to Richmond, Virginia, and while we were walking around downtown near VCU's campus, we passed a strange metal building. On a whim, we decided to go check it out and learn that it was the Institute for Contemporary Arts at VCU, a free art museum. There were several striking pieces at the ICA that caught our eye, with my personal favorite being a series of magnetically levitating sculptures that made it one of the most fun experiences we've had in an art museum in a while. But that's not even the best part. Tucked at the back of a gallery on the second floor, we found what we first thought was an office space, but quickly learned was actually the community media center. And I wanted to shout out Logan Cooper of the media center for saying hi to us when we poked our heads in her door. The community media center is a recording studio and a workspace that's available to the public and dedicated to helping people learn media production techniques and technology, including a podcasting class. It was inspiring to learn about because I believe that everyone has a story to tell, and public resources like the Community Media Center are such an important part of giving more people access to the tools to better tell their stories. So, if you find yourself in Richmond, Virginia, I strongly recommend checking out the Institute for Contemporary Arts and the Community Media Center. Jamal, I partly picked that one as a tribute to your dear state of Virginia. I know it's not your part of Virginia, but still. is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President for Audio at Slate. 
I'm Emily Bazelon. And for Jamel Bowie and John Dickerson, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk with you next week. Slate Plus, so nice to be with you this week. Hope you are doing well. We have a Slate Plus segment this week about cooking. I have really not been doing very much cooking, I admit. I was away for a few weeks. I had some amazing food in Buenos Aires and Mexico City, but I did not cook any of it. I guess I could go on about that. But what I'm really hoping for is that Jamel and John, but especially Jamel, are going to share with us whatever latest dishes they are dreaming up. Jamal, do you have a cooking riff you can go on? I think I do. I'm actually just like looking through my... Uh... Well, while Jamal's looking, shall I just give the only thing I have to say other than questions to pose to him? Would you please, yes, add your bit of wisdom, whatever it is. And this is why my I will have a future meta question for Jamal and you too, Emily. But, but I think Jamal is clearly of the three of us the much more devoted um, chef and also um, puts a lot of thinking into it. It's not just he he does it a lot, but he thinks about it a lot. Anyway, I discovered through my wife, who's who's an excellent cook, is um, taking pieces of bread and roasting a chicken on top of the pieces of bread, which creates these incredibly delightful, crispy, very crispy pieces of bread that are infused in a particular special way with all of the essence and genius of the chicken's flavor. And so when you bite into one of these, it is a flavor explosion. And yet it's not soggy, it's crispy. So it's like it's like the perfect piece of garlic bread, but just a different taste sensation than, than garlic. And if you eat these in... The kind of fall and winter, you know, I don't think on a 95 degree day, this would be so great, but you're not going to be probably roasting a chicken. Well, you might be grilling a chicken. Anyway, wow, so good. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.